Book One, Chapters One and Two of Joseph Andrews. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The History of the Adventures of Joseph Andrews and His Friend, Mr. Abraham Adams. By Henry Fielding. Book One, Chapter One of writing lives in general and particularly of pamela with a word by the by of collie sibber and others it is a trite but true observation that examples work more forcibly on the mind than precepts and if this be just in what is odious and blamable it is more strongly so in what is amiable and praiseworthy. Here emulation most effectually operates upon us, and inspires our imitation in an irresistible manner. A good man, therefore, is a standing lesson to all his acquaintance, and of far greater use in that narrow circle than a good book. But, as it often happens, that the best men are but little known, and consequently cannot extend the usefulness of their examples a great way the writer may be called in aid to spread their history farther and to present the amiable pictures to those who have not the happiness of knowing the originals and so by communicating such valuable patterns to the world he may perhaps do a more extensive service to mankind than the person whose life originally afforded the pattern in this light I have always regarded those biographers who have recorded the actions of great and worthy persons of both sexes, not to mention those ancient writers, which of late days are little read, being written in obsolete, and, as they are generally thought, unintelligible languages, such as Plutarch, Nepos, and others which I heard of in my youth. Our own language affords many of excellent use and instruction, finely calculated to sow the seeds of virtue in youth, and very easy to be comprehended by persons of moderate capacity. Such as the history of John the Great, who, by his brave and heroic actions against men of large and athletic bodies, obtained the glorious appellation of the Giant Killer that of an earl of warwick whose christian name was guy the lives of argalus and parthenia and above all the history of those seven worthy personages the champions of christendom in all these delight is mixed with instruction and the reader is almost as much improved as entertained but i pass by these and many others to mention two books lately published which represent an admirable pattern of the amiable in either sex. The former of these, which deals in male virtue, was written by the great person himself, who lived the life he hath recorded, and is thought by many to have lived such a life only in order to write it. The other is communicated to us by an historian who borrows his lights, as the common method is, from authentic papers and records. 
the reader, I believe, already conjectures, I mean the lives of Mr. Colley Cibber, and of Mrs. Pamela Andrews. How artfully doth the former, by insinuating that he escaped being promoted to the highest stations in church and state, teach us a contempt of worldly grandeur. How strongly doth he inculcate an absolute submission to our superiors. Lastly, how completely doth he arm us against so uneasy, so wretched a passion as the fear of shame. How clearly doth he expose the emptiness and vanity of that phantom reputation. What the female readers are taught by the memoirs of Mrs. Andrews is so well set forth in the excellent essays or letters prefixed to the second and subsequent editions of that work that it would be here a needless repetition. The authentic history with which I now present the public is an instance of the great good that book is likely to do, and of the prevalence of example which I have just observed. Since it will appear that it was by keeping the excellent pattern of his sister's virtues before his eyes that Mr. Joseph Andrews was chiefly enabled to preserve his purity in the midst of such great temptations. I shall only add that this character of male chastity, though doubtless as desirable and becoming in one part of the human species as in the other, is almost the only virtue which the great apologist hath not given himself, for the sake of giving the example to his readers. Book One, Chapter Two, of Mr. Joseph Andrews, His Birth, Parentage, Education, and Great Endowments, with a word or two concerning ancestors. Mr. Joseph Andrews, the hero of our ensuing history, was esteemed to be the only son of Gaffar and Gammer Andrews, and brother to the illustrious Pamela, whose virtue is at present so famous. As to his ancestors, we have searched with great diligence, but little success, being unable to trace them farther than his great-grandfather, who, as an elderly person in the parish remembers to have heard his father say, was an excellent cudgel-player. Whether he had any ancestors before this, we must leave to the opinion of our curious reader, finding nothing of sufficient certainty to rely on. However, we cannot omit inserting an epitaph which an ingenious friend of ours hath communicated. Stay, traveller, for underneath this pew lies fast asleep that merry man Andrew, when the last day's great sun shall gild the skies, then he shall from his tomb get up and rise. Be merry whilst thou canst, for surely thou shalt shortly be as sad as he is now. The words are almost out of the stone with antiquity. But it is needless to observe that Andrew here is writ without an S, and is besides a Christian name. My friend, moreover, conjectures this to have been the founder of that sect 
of laughing philosophers since called Mary Andrews. To waive, therefore, a circumstance which, though mentioned in conformity to the exact rules of biography, is not greatly material, I proceed to things of more consequence. Indeed, it is sufficiently certain that he had as many ancestors as the best man living, and perhaps, if we look five or six hundred years backwards, might be related to some persons of very great figure at present, whose ancestors within half the last century are buried in as great obscurity. But suppose, for argument's sake, we should admit that he had no ancestors at all, but had sprung up, according to the modern phrase, out of a dunghill, as the Athenians pretended they themselves did from the earth. Would not this autocopros, footnote, in English, sprung from a dunghill, would not this autocopros have been justly entitled to all the praise arising from his own virtues? Would it not be hard that a man who hath no ancestors should therefore be rendered incapable of acquiring honour, when we see so many, who have no virtues, enjoying the honour of their forefathers. At ten years old, by which time his education was advanced to writing and reading, he was bound an apprentice, according to the statute, to Sir Thomas Booby, an uncle of Mr. Booby's, by the father's side. Sir Thomas, having then an estate in his own hands, the young Andrews was at first employed in what in the country they call keeping birds. His office was to perform the part of the ancients assigned to the god Priapus, which deity the moderns call by the name of Jacolent. But his voice being so extremely musical that it rather allured the birds than terrified them, he was soon transplanted from the fields into the dog-kennel, where he was placed under the huntsman, and made what the sportsmen term whipper-in. For this place, likewise, the sweetness of his voice disqualified him, the dogs preferring the melody of his chiding to the alluring notes of the huntsman, who soon became so incensed at it, that he desired Sir Thomas to provide otherwise for him, and constantly laid every fault the dogs were at to the account of the poor boy, who was now transplanted to the stable. Here he soon gave proofs of strength and agility beyond his years, and constantly rode the most spirited and vicious horses to water, with an intrepidity which surprised every one. While he was in this station, he rode several races for Sir Thomas, and this with such expertness and success, that the neighbouring gentleman frequently solicited the knight to permit little Joey, for so he was called, to ride their matches. The best gamesters, before they laid their money, always inquired which horse little Joey was to ride, and the bets were rather proportioned by the rider than by the horse himself, especially after he had scornfully refused 
a considerable bribe to play booty on such an occasion. This extremely raised his character, and so pleased the lady booby, that she desired to have him, being now seventeen years of age, for her own foot-boy. Joy was now preferred from the stable to attend on his lady, to go on her errands, stand behind her chair, wait at her tea-table, and carry her prayer-book to church, at which place his voice gave him an opportunity of distinguishing himself by singing psalms. He behaved likewise in every other respect so well at divine service that it recommended him to the notion of Mr. Abraham Adams, the curate, who took an opportunity one day, as he was drinking a cup of ale in Sir Thomas's kitchen, to ask the young man several questions concerning religion, with his answers to which he was wonderfully pleased. End of Book 1, Chapters 1 and 2 Read by Dennis Sayers in Modesto, California for LibriVox